All right, team, let me tell you about NewZest, clean plant-based nutrition products to meet the demands of modern life. And I'm super excited to announce that they are a sponsor of Wikipedia. With over a decade of experience and a presence in more than 20 countries worldwide, NewZest has emerged as a leader in providing innovative solutions for those seeking healthier and more sustainable choices. In a world where people are looking for clean labels, easily digestible ingredients, and allergen-free options, NewZest delivers and totally has you covered. Clean Lean Protein is a plant-based protein powder and contains all nine essential amino acids. It encourages recovery, vitality, muscle repair, and growth, and helps you hit your protein requirements, which you know I am all about. One of my favorite products is their Good Green Vitality. It's the gold standard in multi-nutrients. It's designed to make complex nutrition simple. The Super Blend is carefully formulated to address all aspects of health. 75 ingredients working together to support everything from digestion, immunity and healthy aging to stress, energy and cognition in one daily serve. Grab yours today, guys, with a sweet 20% discount for being a listener of the show with the code Wikipedia over at their website. And we will pop a link in the show notes for you to be able to do that. All right, now back to the show. Welcome. Hi. I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, it's Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I speak to Professor Michael R. Rose. Professor Rose is an evolutionary biologist whose work on ageing really transformed the field. And earlier, when he was uncovering his findings, were probably quite controversial. We discuss his entry into evolutionary biology, how his mentors encouraged his studies that led to the revolutionary work that he's now really well known for. We discuss how we age as humans and how in some ways we are protected during our younger years from the detrimental impact of modern life so we can as a species survive, you know, Darwinian survival of the fittest. And we also discussed that once past our reproductive years that this does change and it influences not only the aging process but has implications for dietary choices activity levels and even how we socialize and how we see ourselves in communities and we cover this detail in today's podcast which was such a super interesting conversation so an evolutionary biologist professor michael rose is really well known in his field and in fact evolution has described the field of aging research as after rose thanks to his influential book evolutionary biology of aging. In 1997, Professor Rose was awarded the BUS Research Prize by the World Congress of Gerontology. In 2004, he published a technical summary of his work on the postponement of aging, Methuselah Flies, followed in 2005 by a popular book on the topic The Long Tomorrow. 
He has more than 300 publications and we have linked to his Google Scholar page in the show notes and has given hundreds of scientific talks around the world. He is currently a distinguished professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of California, Irvine, and as we discuss in today's podcast, is looking forward to retirement. So I have linked Professor Michael R. Rose, his faculty page at the university with which he teaches, his Google Scholar page, but also a website 55thesis.org, which describes in details a lot of his work that is very accessible to the general population. So I really think you're going to enjoy this uh, conversation I have with Professor Rose. Before we crack into it though, just a reminder that the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favourite podcast listening platform. That increases the visibility of the podcast out there in amongst the literally thousands of other podcasts, so more people get the opportunity to learn from the guests that I have on the show. All right, team, enjoy the conversation that I have today with Professor Michael R. Rose. Dr. Michael Rose, thank you so much for um, joining me in your evening. Um, I have listened to you on numerous podcasts over the years and was really excited when you accepted the invitation to come and speak to me on my podcast because of your views on evolutionary biology, um, aging, and of course, uh, what we were just very briefly just talking about, um, sort of how the modern diet, how there's that evolutionary mismatch, if you like, between our current sort of diet and what is optimal for health. Um, can we just kick off by you init- sort of telling me what, in- what initially drew you to studying evolutionary biology all those years ago? So I was already an evolutionary biologist in my interests when in the summer of 1975, John Maynard Smith, then at the height of his fame and renown in Britain, suggested that I do a PhD with Brian Charlesworth and to some extent himself on aging. And I described this in my book, The Long Tomorrow. And I was completely dismayed by this suggestion. In 1975, um, aging was little studied beyond, you know, geriatrics uh, outside of cranks. So there was sort of geriatrics, which was respectable and didn't really amount to much. Then there was were cranks, and they actually weren't that big then. What are cranks? What do you, what are you, what are cranks? Oh, the term crank in, uh, see, I'm Canadian and I've lived and worked in both England and the United States. So it's hard for me to keep track of idiom. Cranks in the United States, I believe, means somebody who has some idea in their heads that they are convinced is right with a relative absence of evidence and go out trying to convince the world of their idea. Okay, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the aging world, the problem mm-hmm. of aging has always attracted cranks. It did in ancient civilization, it does today. 
So I saw a YouTube on this man who literally spends $2 million a year to stop the aging process. And he detailed through, I didn't listen that long, supplement, et cetera, et cetera. And he would be a crank then. No, he would be the dupe of cranks. Um, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, there are lots of cranks in the world with prestigious degrees and in some cases, prestigious academic positions. So ever since 1975, I've been probably the most skeptical person who works in the aging field. Not the most skeptical critic of research on aging, because there are lots of people who love to throw firebombs at anything, especially a field like aging, which has had, as I've said, a long, deep, and shameful history of crankery and and flagrant con artists. So, I mean, it took John Maynard Smith and Brian Charlesworth, both who became fellows of the Royal Society. Brian Charlesworth became a Royal Society professor, which is probably the most prestigious kind of professor in Britain. Um, it took me took them more than a year to convince me that I should even try to work on aging. And what convinced me was mathematics. Uh, the mathematics done by William Hamilton, another Royal Society professor, one of the greatest evolutionary biologists of modern times, and in fact, Brian Charlesworth himself. And their mathematics <clears throat> convinced me there was a very cogent evolutionary theory of aging. <clears throat> they convinced me that there was a very cogent evolutionary theory of aging and that that theory needed experimental testing. Now, I had already been working as a theoretician for three years prior to 1976. And I knew that you could imagine any kind of theory and dress it up so it sounds respectable. Firstly, verbally, and biology has a long and embarrassing history of verbal theories, which don't hold water when you examine them mathematically. And that is to say, they do not make any sense whatsoever. And there are a lot of those in aging research. The second step in examining any hypothesis is to develop it mathematically so that you can see exactly how it works. You know, famous examples, Newton, Einstein. Okay? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And uh, evolutionary geneticists, which is what I am most specifically, basically took the ideas of Charles Darwin and starting in early 1900s, uh, developed the mathematics to see if those ideas would work. And they do actually work very nicely mathematically. And interestingly, really good experiments on those ideas really didn't start until the 1910s. And a high volume of experiments testing Darwin's ideas didn't start to come out until the 1920s and 30s. So here I am, 1976, I'm being... told by chiefly Brian Charlesworth, you know, look, there's this, um, at then, at that time, approximately uh, 50-year tradition of good theory, mathematical theory being done. And Charlesworth had done more than anyone now living to advance that theory. And it was my job to go into the lab 
and test the ideas. How do you test an idea like aging? Like what, so what was your, what did your research entail? So we're now 47 years later. Uh, it entailed a lot. Uh, so I published around half a dozen books on the subject. I've published more than 200 articles on the subject. I have 341 beside your name, actually. So Okay, whatever the number is. Um, And, you know, that research has been cited tens of thousands of times. And I have had thousands of people work in my laboratory with me over the last 47 years. And we have published millions of words and collected probably more than 100 million individual pieces of data. So it's, it's, it's a very large volume of work. Okay. And just this summer, we published a book called Conceptual Breakthroughs in the Evolutionary Biology of Aging, which not only summarizes our work, but the work of everybody in the field starting um, in the 1880s. Wow. Okay. Um, and we go chapter by chapter through the entire history of the field, most of which mm-hmm. is the last uh, century. Michael, so with regards to your theory on aging, how does that or did that at the time sort of challenge other thinking around aging and what happens in the aging process? Okay, so initially my work did not involve any really creative new theoretical work of my own. Um, I, I was mostly an experimentalist. A problem with the experiments that I was doing during my doctorate was that they did not support the favorite hypotheses of my doctoral advisor, Brian Charlesworth, which he had in fact convinced me of. Um, I like to do strong inference experimentation, which if you're an objective scientist and you look at the results of one of my papers, I hope you'll be convinced because we bring the largest quantity of data to each of the questions that we examine of any lab in the world. And we did that right out of the gate. What was his What was his theory of aging that he was hoping you would prove? Excellent question. His theory is what he and I call mutation accumulation, which is mm-hmm. not about somatic mutation. It's the idea that, um, have you ever seen the film Gone with the Wind? Yeah. Okay. So Gone with the Wind is from a, a cis male heterosexual standpoint. Um, to me, the story of Rhett Butler's progressive exasperation with Scarlett O'Hara. And mm-hmm. finally, at the end of the movie, he says to her, you know, frankly, I don't give a damn as yeah. to where she will go and what she will do. And that's the basic idea of mutation accumulation, that evolution by natural selection, frankly, Scarlett, doesn't give a damn about what happens to you when you're past your reproductive years, and it will let you go to hell, physiologically. And this this theory, mathematically, is beautiful. It makes an enormous amount of sense. The only problem with it was that none none of my experiments, which were designed to support it, in fact, did support it, all my experiments constituted evidence against it. And instead, my early experiments supported the alternative idea Uh, which, again, was not my hypothesis, though I named it antagonistic pleiotropy. 
an antagonistic pleiotropy, which is now a generally used concept in genetics and evolution and, and aging research, is the idea of uh, alleles, genetic differences, having both beneficial effects and deleterious effects. It's not the idea that they always have these mixed effects, but that if there is a specific kind of mixed effect, it will foster aging. And the specific kind of mixed effect is when you have a genetic variant that enhances your net reproduction when you're young, but kills you later. The natural selection says, yeah, I don't care about older you. I just want younger you to be hot and reproductive and active and pump out offspring for the next generation, because that's the way the mathematics works. Okay. So it's optimizing reproduction at the expense of later years. You could say that. It's a little more complicated than that, because it turns out when you have real population genetics, evolution doesn't optimize. That's just a mathematical convenience for theoreticians to talk about optimization. Evolution is basically working on segregating genetic alleles, okay? And what it does is much of the time it comes close to optimizing, but it can't really get there because genes don't lead to optimization in Mendelian sexual populations like ours, which is why all kinds of weird things happen, like sex chromosomes and males, which if if evolution were optimal, there would be no males um, and no Y chromosomes and so on, because males are a suboptimal uh, aspect of evolution. Um, uh, that's another area I've worked on. So this actually provoked me to do uh, my first original theoretical work on the evolution of aging, which was a series of papers on antagonistic pleiotropy, wherein I showed that antagonistic pleiotropy is very likely to be a big part of the evolutionary story of aging. And I think, you know, 50 years of research on this point have supported that. There are some special cases, especially in small population sizes, like you get in labs and Pacific Islands, where mutation accumulation is important. But the dominant thing, I think, all the data and theory show is antagonistic pleiotropy, which is evolution sacrificing your health in later life for your health and reproductive activity when you're young. Okay. And so if I'm, so just as a normal person hearing this, what, what, what does it mean actually? Does it, yeah. <laughs> well, there's a very elegant phrase which is, you know, I've I've had six children. Um, the phrase is the cost of reproduction. Yeah. Reproduction is debilitating. Mm -hmm. And the more effort you put into reproduction, the more debilitated you are. The most famous example of that is the Pacific salmon, which basically dies at the very onset of its reproductive career. They can live for years out in the ocean. They swim upstream, their natal stream. They literally have gigantic Pacific salmon orgies in these streams, squirting gametes out everywhere. And within days, they're dead. Okay. Now, while they're dying, bears and eagles and falcons love to feed on them. 
but they're going to be dead within days anyway. It's the cost of reproduction. So that, that, that's a, a very tangible uh, experience to anybody who's taken care of newborns. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Any human. And I guess just thinking about it from a um, biology perspective, just what it takes to grow a human and deliver a human and the nutrient depletion and 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 sleep lot like all of it. All yeah, of it. that I all of it. understand. Debilitation. Yeah. yeah. Debilitation. Yeah, debilitation. <laughs> yeah. Right. And was it like was it accepted at the time, Michael, like your your theory? Uh, okay, so of aging? Uh, so so the original idea is not mine. That idea has been around since nineteen forty six, uh, presented in words. I was the person who converted the words most thoroughly into mathematics. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then I was the person who provided the bulk of the experimental evidence for this theory. But now there is there there are dozens, hundreds of papers which invoke antagonistic pleiotropy in the context of aging, of cancer, uh, many other. It's such a prevalent concept, nobody even knows that I invented it. As, as the phraseology, and that I did the math, yeah, partly because yeah. biologists don't like math. Yeah, <laughs> no, I don't know. And other than I wonder, other than mathematicians, I guess. Um, so, can so, so on on the basis of sort of what happens um, at that sort of genetic basis, if you like, I'm not even sure if that's the right way to describe it. How does the environment then layer on top of that? Like, um, I've heard you speak on that evolutionary mismatch. What are some significant differences in particular diets that might lead to um, more deleterious sort of outcomes? Okay. So there are three different ideas to think about when we're talking about diet. Yes. The core one is that animal species are only well adapted to diets that their ancestors have been exposed to for many generations. Mm-hmm. Okay? I mean, you might think in the abstract that, you know, a uh, fruitarian diet supplemented with tofu would be the like the perfect mammalian diet based on some set of stories you want to tell yourself. And and there's some reasonable stories in there, like saturated fat is hard to transport through our circulatory system. But if you give a cat a diet primarily based on plant products, you will get a very sick cat because cats have been living off of small prey for thousands and thousands of generations. That is what they are adapted to. So you can only be healthy on a diet which has been part of the normal diet of your ancestors for hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands of generations. First basic principle. Mm-hmm. Second basic principle, and this relates to antagonistic pleiotropy and the cost of reproduction. In animals that have a great deal of flexibility in their reproduction, and one of the best examples of this is actually rodents. So rodents have a tremendous capacity to take in a lot of nutrients and convert them into offspring by enormously expanding their investment, literally as females, in their mm-hmm. uterus and and then in their lactation to produce a large number of pups. All right. 
So rodents can go from hardly reproducing at all with a low caloric and nutrient intake to reproducing explosively, you know, like more than 10 pups per litter, possibly. When they've got the nutrients. When they have an abundance of food. And that's also something that we've worked on in the lab. Basically, if you're given you, especially being a female, but to some extent, even males, if you're a flexible reproducer Mm -hmm. and you can reproduce from the dozens to hundreds of offspring within your breeding period, um, you will pay an enormous physiological cost for doing that in terms of your survival. So the greater amount of food gives you much greater offspring, but that's going to tend to kill you faster. And natural selection loves this trade. Okay? I'll give you a still more concrete example of this, which I call the Jimi Hendrix effect, which is, you know, in the late 1960s, Jimi Hendrix was the the ultimate guitar god of rock music. And he was notorious for his prolific sex life. And he died at 27. And he died because he led a very self-destructive lifestyle. And in our lab, we can emulate this by giving um, males unlimited supply of females that enthusiastically want to copulate with that male. Normally, when we handle males in monogamous, or I mean, one male, one female, or normal social conditions where there are lots of females who will say no to this male, you know, they might copulate once or twice a week, maximum. Uh, This is an interesting scaling variable for human males. If you give them unlimited access to enthusiastic female partners, they will have sex to the point of fertilizing those females, um, starting off between like four to nine females a day, day after day, until they're dead. And dead death follows very swiftly. They usually die within about a week. Goodness. Well, it seems like quite a lot of work. Well, ironically, copulation tends to last longer on average in Drosophila the fruit flies I'm talking about, than it does in mammals. So, oh, wow. so ejaculation, basically think continuous male orgasm, in a female fruit fly lasts on the order of 20 minutes. Right. Wow. And during that time, they are pumping a large volume of sperm relative to their body size. Yeah. Um, so the, whereas in mammals, Sex generically lasts like, you know, half a minute to six minutes, as many disappointed females discover. Um, (laughs) So, whereas it's a relatively trivial fraction of time, energy, and literally bodily materials for a mammalian male. But in a fruit fly male, it's a massive commitment. how long do the fruit flies actually live? Like, I'm just thinking the like relative lifespan compared to the amount of time they spend ejaculating. Like, was that half their life? 
Okay. So fruit flies are not mayflies. Mayflies may only live hours as adults. Okay. Uh, fruit flies can live for weeks, um, depending on how much nutrition you give them, the reasons we're discussing now. Um, if you give them very li little nutrition, it's not a big problem for the total, and you deny them sex, it's not a big problem for a fruit fly to live 60 to 70 days. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, Not longer than I thought, actually. Yeah, most people don't know that. Uh, so you can just crudely think in terms of a day for a year as, mm, as a okay. way to think of it. Um, yeah, yeah. Of course, for, you know, the last 46 years, I have been coming up with evolutionary genetic and nutritional tricks to control mm. uh, how long fruit flies live, both males and females. And if you want a female to live longer, you will reduce her nutrition so that she then has much lower egg laying and she'll live actually, in her case, only 10 to 20% longer. In a male, as I've just said, you give them unlimited access to females, they will the male will copulate himself to death within a week, roughly. Um, if you keep them as virgins, that then they can live 10 times that. Yeah. Um, Michael, what you just described with regards to reducing caloric intake in the females, is that the basis for a lot of the longevity um, theories out there now that if we, the calorie restriction theory of longevity, you know, we just like eat 30% less from now until the day we die and we'll be miserable, but also live 30% longer. Is that about right? Oh, nicely, nicely posed. So if you're a rodent, especially a female rodent, and you restrict your food intake by about 50%, enough to survive, but too little to have much reproduction at all, you can roughly double the rodent lifespan. Depends on the strain, depends on the species, but huge impact. And to me as an evolutionary biologist, that makes perfect sense because rodents put enormous amounts of energy into reproduction, and they have tremendous reproductive flexibility. It was pointed out to me by a former postdoc of mine, Jay Phelan, that primates generically don't have that great reproductive flexibility, and one of the least reproductively flexible species is humans. And uh, fruit flies are actually in the middle. So, Jay Phelan and I did this quantitative study of the impact of nutrition on longevity. And uh, he came up with the best data, which are Japanese. I did some sort of extremal mathematical analysis. And the estimate that we came up with was that the maximum plausible benefit to lifespan, and in our case, we were mostly analyzing males, from very substantial caloric restriction was two to four years. That's if you get all the nutrients exactly right and you don't die of infection, which is a very big risk at low body weights. You don't die of suicide, a very big risk at low body weights. You'd be relatively infertile. You'd probably be somewhat cognitively impaired. For the majority of people who have a diet like that, um, they go off it immediately as soon as they're given access to food. 
Um, but there are some, uh, Roy Wolford is my favorite example, who are happier on that diet. Although Roy, Roy Wolford died, in my opinion, relatively young, I think in his 70s. And, and he, he died of uh, ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Uh, very, very sad. I, I like the guy enormously. He was like the ultimate cool dude. Nobody was cooler than Roy. Uh, actually, there, there, there's kind of an experiment done on human caloric restri restriction with and without isolation. Uh, one example is Okinawa, which because of its unusual placement and its lack of relative lack of rice cultivation and things like the Second World War and its prequel, which was war uh, in between the Japanese and the Chinese and places like Manchuria, and then the devastation following the Second World War, they had a protracted period of restricted availability to nutrients on top of a, an economic situation, which generally didn't give them that much access to nutrition. And they are quite famous for being long-lived. In fact, we, we use their data in our analysis of caloric restriction. The other contrast is Cambodia between 1975 and 1980, where they did a multi-million person experiment in caloric restriction. But in Cambodia, in addition to the people deliberately killed by the Khmer Rouge, many, many people died of things like colds, influenza, tuberculosis, and so on. The difference is that in Okinawa, the indigenous populations were largely protected from pandemics or just routine diseases passing through. In Cambodia, they were completely exposed. So if you're on the brink of starving to death, literally one round of influenza can kill you. Um, I don't recommend severe caloric restriction to anyone as an anti-aging method. Having said that, I have to say that most people on the standard American diet, which is now becoming the global crap diet, people on that diet overeat titanically for at least two reasons. The first one is those foods are designed to be addictive. Yeah. You know, like good luck eating just one potato chip. You know, yeah. Just, mm -hmm. just having, Once you pop, you can't stop. Yeah. One kernel of popcorn, you know, half an ounce of high fructose corn syrup, sweetened soda. It's addictive stuff. And um, so there's, there's that aspect to the whole thing. Um, so in addition, we live in a culture. I mean, I live in the United States um, where food is such a big part of our culture and it's all over advertising. So we're encouraged to become food addicts. Agribusiness profits off of food addiction. We're vulnerable. I mean, you know, we all need to eat food. So resisting the, the insanely sweet, salty, mouthfeel foods that have been literally engineered to get us addicted to them, good luck. And I've heard you um, talk, if we relate it back to your the sort of theory on ageing, and, and um, obviously you'll correct me if I've uh, got this wrong, but that sort of during the reproductive years, it's 
it appears less important because the priority is reproduction that, in fact, under these suboptimal conditions for, you know, diet or whatnot, we're still able to reproduce. But it's in our later years post-reproduction where um, it can be even uh, where the effects of the diet are far worse. Is that Have I got that correct? I mean, in, in, in general, young people can survive abusing their physiologies better than older people like myself. <clears throat> but there's an additional factor. This is the third factor. And that is natural selection acts tilted toward the young in general. That's the basic antagonistic pleiotropy principle. So that means that even a healthy organic agricultural diet, which is fantastic for people with agricultural ancestry, like Europeans, uh, Asians, um, people with those ancestries, uh, in our early years, reflects very rapid adaptation to agriculture over the last, you know, six to 12,000 years, depending on which particular ancestry you have. But remember, the basic idea is Rhett Butler getting fed up with Scarlett O'Hara. Natural selection is getting weaker and weaker as you get older, or more precisely, as the action of natural selection acts most powerfully on the young, making the young best attuned, not only to long-standing diets, but new diets new diets in our evolutionary history. So, you know, if you're from Iran, Iraq, um, uh, Shanghai, you're, and you're under 30, you're really well adapted to the historically, historical agricultural diet of your area. When you are 60 or 70 years of age, I don't care where you're from, you're not adapted to an agricultural diet anymore. Because the adaptation process is accelerated in the young, for the young, this is a better term. And that was a theory, it was an idea I first had around 2010. And uh, I published uh, with others a verbal proposal of that in 2011. We then did some math, the math worked. We then did a whole bunch of experiments, and we published those experiments in 2020 and 2021, the first author was the doctoral student Grant Rutledge, R-U-T-L-E-D-G-E, who was the primary experimenter on those projects. And the experiments dramatically illustrate that if you've been through a recent change of diet, even for hundreds of generations, um, and most people who do the reproducing are young, which is the human historical case, at least since the advent of agriculture, then it's you're really only going to be adapted to it when you're a child or a young adult. And then what and then when we get older, we are less adapted to the agricultural diet, as you said, like we're not adapted. So what is the implications there if we continue to consume the diet that we did when we were younger? Okay. So so you live in New Zealand? And uh, people with strictly Maori ancestry are made sick by the organic Western agricultural diet. Yeah. It's the wrong diet for them. Yeah. But the truth is that if you're over 60, the way I am, you're not much more adapted to it than the Maori are. 
Yeah, interesting. After the age of 60, we're all Maori in that sense. Yeah. And so what kind of foods then are the, the I mean, obviously, um, I'm just going to say obviously flour and sugar and industrial oils are, are the, you know, the three primary ingredients of the ultra processed food in, in the diet. But what about things like bread and pasta and rice and, and dairy and, and what's the story there? Those are great foods when you're 12 and 22, but if you're 62, forget it. Yeah, you're just ruining yourself. Yeah, and is this going to be an obvious, um, uh, is it going to be obvious to the individual? And I'll, just a little bit of context is that I work with a, a ton of people who are around my age and, and older in that perimenopause, mini menopause um, stage, Um obviously I'm talking about women in this stage, and they start experiencing symptoms of food intolerances, like they're no longer able to tolerate dairy, they get bloating or inflamed, uh, gluten gives them brain fog, whereas this didn't happen sort of 20 or 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Is this what you're describing? Yes. Are there people who might not have a noticeable change in, in how they feel, yet you would still say, you know what, you're over 50, that is not an ideal food choice for you. Okay. The generic, more than generic, the general effect of eating the wrong diet for your evolutionary history is inflammation. Okay. Um, inflammation as an initial pathological response to diet then fosters high blood pressure, cancer, um, brain fog leading to dementias. So, you know, do you really want to die for pizza? You know, I mean, it's, it's your choice. I literally have colleagues who know the science, agree with the science, sometimes are even involved in the science. They're willing to die for pizza. I am not willing to die for pizza. So I had my last you know, conventional pizza more than how many years ago now? More than 15 years ago? So your research then, and and I often, and what you describe with your colleagues, I, I mean, I see that quite a bit as, as well. And I imagine in people in their sort of fields of expertise may see it and um, illustrated or things like that illustrated quite a bit. How long, so Michael, you did the the research and got the results. At that point, did you go, huh, I've really got to think about what I'm doing? <laughs> or like, what was the trajectory like okay. for you personally? Okay. Are, are you willing to hear a five-minute story? Yeah. Okay. So I, I have a lot of Scottish and Irish ancestry, so very peripheral to Eurasia. And I first was diagnosed with grass allergies when I was a teenager. Then in my 20s, I realized I had problems with milk. Um, then in my 30s, I discovered I had favism, which is an intolerance of legumes. Okay. So I started restricting my diet in my 20s. And in my 40s, I was developing significant life-threatening GI tract problems, mostly with my esophagus. 
And I noticed that the more stringent I was about avoiding the foods that I had diagnosed problems with, the better off my esophagus was. But I was still having problems, and and I couldn't figure out why. Then, uh, this was October of 2008, a friend of mine who I was meeting with complained of some of the same problems I had with my esophagus. And I said, well, you know, you should really see a doctor about that. And he did, and he had esophageal cancer. And he died about three months later, two days before I finally got an appointment with a diagnostic gastroenterologist about my problems. And uh, they took my blood pressure shortly before that appointment, which was like within two days of my friend dying. And my systolic blood pressure was temporarily like 200. <laughs> Unsurprisingly. I mean, I calmed down and it went, went way down. But yeah, yeah. it took, took me five minutes. And so I see the gastroenterologist, who's still my gastroenterologist, all these years later. And I explained to him my, all my struggles with my diet and all my diagnosed food allergies and intolerances and all my esophageal symptoms and, and so on. And he disappeared. He came back and he said, he handed me a printout because by then he knew I was a biology PhD. And he said, you have eosinophilic esophagitis. I said, what's that? I've never heard of it. And he said, basically, it's an acute inflammatory condition. Uh, which causes esophageal problems. And then I asked him, so what can I do about this? And he said, well, we have two main alternatives. One is I can give you glucocorticosteroids to reduce your inflammatory response in general. And I said, no, thank you. I've seen what decades of glucocorticosteroids can do, like chronic edema, brain fog, and so on. No, thank you. What's the other option? And he said, well, you could go farther with being restrictive with your diet. And I thought, wow, I'm being pretty restrictive already. (laughs) So what's going to be left for me to eat? Furthermore, I I was then at a seminar within a few months where it was pointed out to me that though I was thinking of, of the cereal species like wheat, rye, barley as very different from rice and corn, they were in fact all grass species. And I knew I had a severe grass allergy. So I thought, huh. Maybe the key is to eliminate all grass species from my diet. And then, you know, I had been eating like cooked cheese to that point, uh, like pizza. And uh, I realized, well, if I go farther, I have to eliminate everything from a mammalian udder. Goat cheese, cow cheese, doesn't matter. And then finally, you know, I was still exposing myself to stuff like soy oil and stuff, which is one of the hardest things to avoid in a modern modern world. So I started to become way more stringent about legumes. And once I'd done all those things, within six months, my health was transformed. Wow. And in all kinds of ways, large and small. Number one, my esophagus was a lot better. Number two, the typical, you know, I was in my mid-50s, middle-aged backache, that was gone. Brain fog, that was gone. Stamina, that was improved. It just went on and on. And I thought, what the hell? Yeah. You know, I've been... You have incredible skin, by the way. Like, for your... so, Like, you look a whole lot younger than, than your actual age. 68. 
Um, yeah. Thank you. Um, so uh, I thought th- th- this is like the weirdest thing has ever happened to me medically. So I thought and I thought and then I thought, hey, everything that I've completely eliminated from my diet is a novel agricultural food, which we never would have consumed in large amounts before the advent of agriculture. And then I thought, well, that doesn't make sense to me. As an experimental evolutionist, I know you can get very rapid adaptation over the course of hundreds of generations. And then the penny dropped. And I realized, but no, it's the Rhett Butler problem. Natural selection has not been working hard on the health of me and my ancestors late in life. When I was younger, I could eat the pizza and not pay a big price for it, although I paid some price. And as I've gotten older, I've become less and less tolerant of those things. And then I realized, oh my God, this is a completely general evolutionary genetic idea. Um, This is one of my aha moments in my career. So I turned to my very good colleague, Larry Muller, and we do the math and do numerical calculations, and the idea works. Your adaptation to an evolutionarily novel, but not completely novel diet, is weighted in favor of the young against the old. Okay? So, yeah, young people can do really well on organic agricultural diet if they have agricultural ancestry, not Maoris not Australasian Aboriginals, right? But, you know, most, you know, most people with Eurasian ancestry have lots of history of selection that adapts them when they're young to an organic agricultural diet. And it's very important to say no one at any age is adapted to high fructose corn syrup, uh, seed oils, processed seed oils, and so on, and the long list of gums and emulsifiers and everything else is added to our diets. The modern, I call it standard American diet, but now really standard global diet, is completely toxic for absolutely everyone. And it sets you up for a lifetime of health problems, of food addictions. Uh, I think those food addictions can lead to more general forms of substance abuse. Um, and sets you up for obesity and all those things. But even if you are a conscientious, like, nutritionist, concerned about your health, what you need to do for the first 30 years of your life, what you can do, is completely different from what you should do for your last 30 years of life. Okay? And in between, there's a transition. So between the ages of 30 and 50, you're in transition. Which is sort of the age that I was asking about or talking about with the the people that I see in and around that thirty to fifty. Um, Michael, you're so obviously in sort of mainstream. The idea of a paleo diet is much more mainstream now than what it might have been as when you were experiencing your health difficulties at that time. Did you come across the work of Lauren Cordain um, and? others who are sort of researched in that ancestral diet space? I actually met, um, it was either Boyd or Eaton, of Boyd and Eaton fame, who published on this, I think, in the 1980s. And I really wasn't convinced because I was an experimental evolutionist and part of what I've done in my career is make something evolve from one thing to another. 
Like So I, I have used evolution, that's one of the methods I've used, to produce animals that live twice as long. Yeah. Okay? And then conversely, I can take animals that live twice as long and make them live half as long as that. You know, it could back and forth, complete, complete power. So my intu intuition, like many evolutionary biologists, was that the paleo idea was based on the misconception we get from Darwin that evolution only proceeds very slowly. Now, that was, frankly, a prejudice Charles Darwin came by from being a uniformitarian geologist, a student of Charles Lyell, literally. Um, it's not actually correct. Evolution by natural selection can work with incredible speed so long as it is working with maximum intensity, which it does on the young, but it doesn't for the old. So originally you weren't convinced. No. Did you... And, and Not at all. Yeah. 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 And did that change or yes, did you yes. think, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so, so where are you at? So yeah, because that's, that's interesting, isn't it? Like um, you basically proved yourself wrong. Well, I've done that repeatedly, but I, I've also had the pleasure of proving many other people wrong. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I have no respect for biological intuition. If there's anything that in my experience is consistently wrong, it's human intuition about biology. And number one, about aging. If I hear somebody talking about, you know, uh, TNF metabolism or FOXO or rapamycin, and they're using words, okay, I never believe them. Yeah. They, they may, and there are two levels to my disbelief. Firstly, I don't think any biologist whatsoever is very good at figuring out all the different things a particular enzyme will do or a particular gene will do because of the word pleiotropy and antagonistic pleiotropy. Pleiotropy means one gene, many effects. As yeah. soon as you get, I mean, and that's the generic condition is pleiotropy. And we're now knowing, learning enough genomics, <clears throat> transcriptomics, and metabolomics to understand that our physiology is a vastly complex network. The way to think of the physiology of your body is like all the stuff that's going on on the entire World Wide Web. All right. That's how complicated human physiology. And if you think you can talk your way to an insight about that, well, you know, you're either very close to a deity or self-deluded. Yeah. Okay. I haven't personally met any deities, you know, walking around telling me about which pathway will do what using verbal reasoning. However, we can now figure out what genetically underlies a complicated character. The character for which we know most about the genetic determinants uh, of that character is human height. And that's not only in humans, that's in everything. So there's been more genome-wide research on human height. And what that research shows overwhelmingly is hundreds, if not thousands, of different sites in the genome contribute to the genetic determination of height. I have done, using somewhat different methods with a whole bunch of colleagues, analogous work on the genetic determinants of aging in fruit flies, which is 
a lot simpler than human aging, a minimum estimate for the number of sites in a fly genome that controls its aging is greater than 500. 500. And it's not like there are two or three master genes. And interestingly, almost none of those 500 correspond to the usual Drosophila geneticist verbal story about the genes that control aging in fruit flies. So humans suck when it comes to analyzing aging. They even suck if they have a lab. Because if they have a regular lab and they're not doing genome-wide research on large numbers of animals, which means actually tens of thousands to millions, they just don't have enough data. So I'm not saying that my standard molecular genetic reductionist colleagues with their stories about aging are always wrong. So we found one gene in our genomic studies, which turns up, which is also talked about by cell molecular geneticists who study aging, and that's superoxide dismutase. That appears to be important. But if you look objectively, and there's a way to do this statistically, and you take random guesses about what's going to work in the genome, and you line up the random guesses against all the cell molecular genetic stories against hardcore genomic results, the random guesses do better than the stories that molecular geneticists will tell you about one gene or another. Is it just a is it a lack of data at this point, or it's so unknown, isn't it? Like we're at the certain point in research with with everything, but there's still so much we don't know. Circa 2000, Craig Venter created modern day genomics. Yeah. Not only could modern day genomics answer these questions, we, my colleagues and I, have been doing this since 2008, and publishing our results. There are well-established methods now for answering these questions. They involve genome-wide sequencing, transcriptome-wide sequencing, that's all the RNAs that your DNA makes. They involve looking at all the metabolites, and we're doing this and publishing it. And by we, I don't just mean my lab now. There are other, more and more labs are doing this. So the way ahead, very simply, is the world of omics, multi-layer omics, genomics, transcriptomics, proteomics, metabolomics. We can answer all these questions. And we already have initial answers at genomic, transcriptomic, and metabolomic levels in fruit flies. Now that before you, your listeners think, well, fruit flies, who cares about them? Well, fruit flies, Drosophila, have been the pioneer organism for a large fraction of all of the biological and biomedical breakthroughs of the last hundred years. We only figured out genetics and how chromosomes worked thanks to fruit flies. We figured out developmental biology with fruit flies. We figured out neurobiology with fruit flies. And in fact, since the 19-teens, so for more than a century, fruit flies have been the most powerful organism for us to understand aging in animal species, where animal means more than mammals, includes insects and so on. So once again, the fruit fly is our 
omic pioneer for unraveling, for penetrating into the mysteries of aging. Okay. So if I'm on Twitter and I'm reading someone's claim that their lab found something affected this this pathway, the FOXO pathway, and now I should now I'm like, oh, maybe I should take something to boost my NAD. That's a little bit too reductionist. It's it's radically too reductionist. Um, yeah, I listened to a podcast summarizing ten or twelve human studies on NAD and related su- forms of supplementation. Mm-hmm. No robust positive results at all, and that doesn't mean that people's favorite supplement might not be a good idea. And there are ways to combine bioinformatics with omics, with large amounts of data, with machine learning, you can call it AI, to test whether or not NAD and related forms of supplementation have any prospect of working. What about sauna or cold plunge or cold water immersion? Do you have any opinions about those as as um, they as, a, as they might impact aging or longevity? Okay, so you you know the term hormesis. Yes. Um, so we've basically been studying hormetic effects for more than three decades. Um, if you mess with an animal in a way that reduces their reproductive effort, but doesn't threaten their survival, they will tend to live longer and be more robust. Hmm. Stress resilience. Well, stress tunes down reproduction in all its forms. Now, in males, a big aspect of reproductive effort is hanging around and attempting to court females. Okay. So so that's physiologically, it seems like males don't invest much in reproduction. And in terms of, you know, tissue level male physiology in humans, that's true. But if you think in terms of all those males hanging out on online dating or going to clubs or trying to become rich and famous, e.g. Elon Musk, that's a huge amount of effort, okay? And if all you want to do is survive as a male, you really don't need to do that, okay? Um, So anything you do, so caloric restriction, a lot of exercise, um, extremes of temperature, um, and so on, so long as you're not impairing your survival, capacity, but you are saying to your body, wow, physiologically, this is a bad time to do something as expensive as reproduction. That will enhance your survival and functioning a little bit because we're not a very good candidate for hormesis. Okay. Rodents are excellent candidates for hormesis because they, if you give them lots of food in great conditions, they'll reproduce explosively. Same thing is true in fruit flies. They're good candidates for hormetic effects. Okay? Hormetic effects do, in fact, work in humans. But I think a much more profound benefit 
can be obtained by adjusting your diet to your age and your evolutionary history. So that's where that's the big dial mover, diet. What, what about exercise? I mean, you mentioned exercising a lot, but that must play a role as well. <clears throat> yeah. So extremes of exercise kill humans sooner. Extremes of exercise can kill you in, especially if you're over 40, like in an afternoon. Um, even But even when you're very young, so people dropping dead from heart valve problems uh, who are athletes, unfortunately, is, is too common. Um, but moderate levels of exercise is what hunter-gatherers do all the time, every day. And they do not sit on their butts for hour after hour, you know, whether doing podcasts or, you know, attending lectures or driving cars. That's not their lifestyle. Uh, but nor are they Olympic athletes, it should be said. There's this myth that all hunter-gatherers are running 30 miles a day. Absolutely false. In fact, if you look at the total metabolic expenditures of hunter-gatherer populations compared to, you know, everyday Americans, it's about the same. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Well, I, I think a key to understanding that is realizing that your brain can use up to 50% of your serum glucose in a day. Now, if you're doing any type of activity, that proportion falls. But we have a very metabolically expensive brain. But, you know, we spent more than a million years with hunter-gatherer lifestyles. And that's the sort of permanent residue of adaptation that is there for us once we're over 50. So it's not just the diet. Once you realize the evolutionary pattern, which is that as you go forward in chronological age, you go backward in your evolutionary history, you realize you shouldn't just... Um, you know, walk the way agriculturalists walk. Um, but y the more activity that is not life-threatening that you can go through in a day, the better off you're going to be. Yeah. And is that what you do as well, Michael? <laughs> I wish. I uh, If I didn't have my, my two youngest children to take care of, yeah. But and, on the other hand, having two young children to take care of, and by young I mean under 20, means I, I'm constantly having to get up and do things for them, you know, from cooking to addressing their issues to breaking up their squabbles. So it literally keeps me on my toes. Yes. Uh, and and I, I use, I'm retiring this year, but I used to, you know, walk to my office building and then stand up and give, you know, anywhere from one to six hours of lectures a day. So I was very active. Now that I'm retiring, I, I have to think of ways I can be as active because inactivity kills you. That doesn't mean you have to be an Olympic athlete. Like literally just walking a lot and carrying stuff and avoiding sitting for long periods, which unfortunately I've been doing, you know, the more sedentary you are, that's the second terrible thing you do. The third thing might not occur to most people, but occurs to me, which is, you know, humans live in tribes. These days we live in metaphorical tribes, but before the advent of agriculture, we lived in tribes of, you know, 40 to 120 people all our lives, 
We might switch tribes from time to time, depending on fights, usually over some mating situation. That hasn't changed. Um, but the modern atomistic social life where, you know, we see the people in our nuclear family and a small number of people at work, for most of us, that's really unnatural. We thrive in tribes. If you don't have a tribe, get one and spend as much time as possible being with them face to face, talking to them. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And have you got that sorted for when you retire? <laughs> Again, that, that, that that's a project. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, my, my academic lifestyle was very good in terms of points two and three. Yeah, 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 for sure. Absolutely. When I added the diet component, it really was a health revolution. And my friends basically perceive me as having reverse aging on a scale of five to 10 years. I will also say anecdotally, the people I've persuaded to fully take my advice, which is mostly people very nerdy like myself, they have also experienced health revolutions where they go back. And there's one last thing I would really like to leave your readers or listeners, I should say, with. And that is the most important fact about aging that has been established over the last 30 years is that it stops. It stops later in life. And when it stops, it depends on your diet. On the standard American diet, there's more than enough data to show you continue to age until you're 105 and trashed physiologically. On an organic agricultural diet, which came to an end in the 1920s, people who live their whole lives that way, they stop aging at about 90. There is the possibility, not yet shown in any data, but it's in our math, it's in our experiments, that if we adopt a hunter-gatherer diet after the age of 50 and lifestyle and have a tribe, we might stop aging in our 70s under vastly better health circumstances mm -hmm. than the other two diets, whether organic agricultural or standard American diet. Now, you're not talking about living forever, though, are you? Well, technically, when you stop aging, you have biological immortality. Aging means not that you have one or another level of likelihood of dying in a year. It means that likelihood of dying in any year is getting steadily worse. So the most important thing anybody could do with their aging is to stop it. And my, you know, thumb level, thumb on the scales level guess is that on fully hunter-gatherer lifestyle, or as close as you can get to it, that aging stops somewhere in your 70s, as opposed to your 90s or your 100s, the way it does on the other two diets. Because you're taking full advantage of the residuum of a million years of selection for adaptation to a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. We've only had on the order of 10,000 years of adapting to an agricultural lifestyle, and most of those benefits go to the young, not to the older. And nobody's adapted to the standard American diet. That's why it steadily kills us all the way to 105. Yeah. Things worse and worse. 
And, Michael, just one last thing. Do your kids listen to you? Well, they, they don't really have to listen to me, except when I argue with them about high fructose corn syrup uh, <laughs> and seed oils. Because, and, and you know, because they're young, they, they don't really need to worry. You know, my, my oldest is 38, and he's noticing that if he avoids gluten and dairy, he does better. Yeah, I have to say that you are certainly a very good example of the principles that you've just outlined for the listeners in terms of aging and how to stop aging, essentially, and also like quality of life as you age, as you get older. Um, <laughs> that's what I meant. But I do actually have one final question. So the hunter-gatherer diet is appropriate for your ancestry so actually like understanding where you're from would play a big role in terms of figuring out the, the appropriate diet yeah if you're maori you can never eat pizza yeah basically you know, if, yeah if yeah, you're italian yeah. you can eat pizza into your 30s yeah yeah okay yeah you know i once did actually buy an ancestry D, uh, dna kit which i've never done i should probably try and hunt that out just to um i mean it, it's it's actually you know, it, it matters when you're under 30, but over 50, the only thing I think our bodies are good at is leading an agri a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Yeah, okay. So yeah. it doesn't matter. No, okay. And actually I am closer to 50 than I am 30. So yeah, good call. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much for your time. And I will pop uh, links to your um, ResearchGate page, to your books as well on my... Um, on. May, may I make some suggestions about that? Yeah, please. Uh, much better than ResearchGate and unencumbered yeah. by attempts to get you to pay money is Google Scholar. Okay. And I have a Google Scholar page with my middle initial, Michael R. Rose. And, yes. and everything is free there. Secondly, I have a free website called 55, numerals 55, theses, T-H-E-S-E-S dot -E -E org, where everything I've been saying to you today is presented in uh, about 55, a little over 55, uh, little mini podcasts brilliant and with each podcast is a sentence that summarizes the podcast okay well that is awesome and and i will put links to 55 thesis and the google scholar page for michael r rose into the show notes um thank you so much for your time um your evening and uh today i really appreciate it it's been fun thank you Alrighty, so hopefully you enjoyed that conversation and as I said um, earlier, definitely check out his Google Scholar page but also his website 55thesis.org which goes into a ton of detail. 
And next week on the podcast, I'm excited to bring to you the conversation that I had with Dr. Christabel Yeo on mitochondrial dysfunction and fatigue. Until then, though, you can catch me over on Instagram, Threads, and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, or head to my website, mickeywillardin.com, and sign up to my recipe access. All right, team, you have a great week. Talk soon.